listening to the premier home brewing podcast serving Toronto, the GTA, and the rest of Southern Ontario. Recorded from our studio in North York, Toronto, and brought to you via the internet. Featuring interviews with prominent home brewers and craft brewers from across our great province. This is Brew Talk Online. With your host, Zach Weinberg. It's so yellow and fizzy and tasteless. I love it. And Kevin Freer. Guts out all over the brand new. Like, what's the mixer? Hello, everyone, and welcome again to Brew Talk Online. I'm your host, Kevin Freer. With me, my co-host, Zach Weinberg. Hey, what's up, guys? Uh, just a couple quick announcements, because we've got a lot to get to today. There's a lot of people in the room here. You're going to hear a lot of voices. Um, we are on Stitcher and iTunes, if you want to just search up Brew Talk Online, as well as Facebook and Twitter and email and all that fun stuff, if you want to get a hold of us. Um, one very quick announcement, and this is like the only time I'm going to plug this, because it'll probably happen before we record anything ever again, but my brewery, Wellington Brewery, is having its 30th anniversary on September 26th and 27th. It's a cask festival. There's going to be at least 30 one-off beers, food trucks, bands. The Wellington Band is playing, so you get to see me stumble my way through like Brown Eyed Girl and stuff. It's going to be great. Um, you can get tickets at wellycaskfest.com, W-E-L-L-Y caskfest.com. I think they're pretty cheap. I think they're like 25 bucks, and there's buses running from downtown Guelph and all sorts of fun stuff. Um, our guest today will be here. So I'm just going to do some quick introductions. With me, we have Angus Ross, Richard Priest, and Nathaniel Ferguson from Escarpment Labs. Welcome, guys. Hi. Hi. Now, there's a lot of you, so actually, we're just going to go real quick. I'm going to go with Nate, because he's right beside me. Nate, we've known each other for a while. Why don't you talk... Just a bit. Why don't you talk about um, your history and how you got into brewing and beer first, and then we'll just kind of go around the table. Sure, yeah. So uh, I kind of got started uh, started brewing younger than what was, can I say, what you're legally supposed to? <laughs> uh, we just kinda got brewing into reasons just for alcohol production. It kind of caught the bug. Uh Started homebrewing in, in high school and then got to university, kept on going through it. I ended up uh, get going to University of Guelph for uh, biochemistry and eventually microbiology. Uh, those two courses just really kind of led me into brewing. Uh, I started working at Grand River Brewing as well as working in the, a yeast lab at, at the University of Guelph, which we'll hear more about with uh, Angus and Richard. Uh, and on top of that, kind of became known for knowing micro stuff when, in regards to brewing, you know, how to actually use and manage yeast inside of breweries. Uh, that led me to teaching at Niagara College, uh, originally teaching the micro course and as well as filtration courses and things like that, uh, which has led me to becoming the uh, program coordinator and professor for the brewmaster program over there. Uh, in doing so, and kind of knowing who I am and knowing Angus Richard Pryor, I'm kind of the newest addition to uh, Escarpment. Now, so can anyone who wants to uh, start that pro or join that program, can they just email you directly and you'll just get them in, no problem? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I will say this. There's... We're looking for certain people for the program. We're not looking for, that sounds a little odd, uh, we're looking for people who withdraw. We want people who actually want to be brewers, like people who are already trying to cut their teeth. 
you know, grades grades are important, but it's a lot you can it's a lot easier for us to teach someone who really wants to learn something than someone who's a great student that really doesn't care. Uh, you know, we're looking for people who already say are doing their BJCP, who are already homebrewing, who are volunteering for breweries and festivals, and just trying to get really their feet wet and hands dirty in this industry. Those people have a far, far better chance of getting into the program than, say, uh, I have ninety-five percent in all my courses, but I like drinking beer, and that's about it. <laughs> cool. Okay, and uh, let's go, Rich. My history. Yeah, just how did you get into <laughs> beer? I, I know a little bit about you. I know what you studied, but. Uh, how did you get into beer, and how did you get into brewing? Because you're kind of like the, the homebrewer of the group, right? Um, yeah, that's kind of funny, because I, I've been homebrewing for, like, by far the least amount of time. Um, I, I was living with with a guy who one day came home and was like, hey, let's let's uh, let's buy a homebrew kit. Let's make beer. And, you know, it was one of those, like, wort-in-a-bag kind of things that you just sprinkle on your, like, bag of yeast. And it was kind of terrible. And, and I recognized that because I, I drink, you know, drank a few beers in my day and thought, okay, there's got to be a better way. And I just kept thinking that until we're, you know, at this point. Um, so just continuing to think about beer and the ingredients. And, and since I was also in school for microbiology, my main focus was on yeast. So I uh, serendipitously also ended up in this same yeast research lab. Um, where I actually had the tools and, and techniques to start banking and isolating yeasts. So having access to pretty much any yeast imaginable really helped me along in terms of uh, homebrewing and also in, in terms of actually learning how to help people with, with the beers that they're making and with advice and stuff like that. So that's sort of where we are um, now, where we're taking that knowledge and, and trying to actually sell yeast. Cool. Angus? Right. I mean, so I, I, similar to these guys, I got into into beer at a, at a, at a fairly young age. Um, I, I got into it in, in my undergrad in, 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 um, in Halifax. Um, there was a, a bar called uh, The Rogue's Roost where they had uh, trivia nights and they had uh, beer that they made on, on premises there. I think, I think that's sort of where I, where I sort of discovered that beer was not just something to guzzle down. Um, and, and as for homebrewing, I, I actually learned how to homebrew in Japan. Um, so I was there teaching uh, English as a, as a second language. Um, and uh, I, I don't know how much you know about the Japanese beer scene. It's, it's gotten a lot better in, in, in recent years. But, uh, but when I was there, it was really just, you know, the crap lagers. Um, and, uh, you know, th- there, was, there was this one beer called The, the Hop. Um, that had a, had a little bit more, it had a green label, it had hops on it, and it had, you know, some hop aroma to it. Um, but basically I, I had, you know, not a great selection of, of, of beer to, to work with in, in Japan. So, um, a buddy of mine, um, and our, and our partners, um, decided to, to start brewing our own, um. And then when I came back to, to Canada, um, I sort of continued that. But I, I've sort of, uh, like, in, in recent years, I've, I've sort of figured out that brewing itself isn't really the thing that, that drives me. Like, I, I'm really interested in the, in the fermentation side, in everything that happens after the boil. Um, for me, like, the figuring out malt bills and differences between hops and, you know, 
devoting a whole day and then the cleanup, I, it's not really for me. Um, so I, I have been doing a lot of like like cider fermentations. Uh, this um, this past winter, I or last last fall, I, I bought 200 liters of, of uh, apple cider from a uh, from a local uh, cidery, from a local uh, apple orchard, and uh, and set about you know, fermenting it with a whole bunch of different stuff. So I, right now in a basement, I've got you know milk crates and milk crates and milk crates of um, of this cider that that's the same that the same base juice fermented with a whole bunch of uh, different strains that uh, that I got from from our our new company. Very cool. Yeah. Um, so so you guys all met in uh, in school in Guelph. In University yeah, of Guelph. I, I actually I, I worked in the same lab at the same time as Angus, and then uh, Richard I met via Angus do this whole kind of. Uh, yeah, I never actually yeah. met Nate until <laughs> until Angus was like, we should bring this guy into our business. I'm the bridge. And then <laughs> after about five minutes, I was like, yes, this, this is the guy. <laughs> a, fr- a, a really good friend of Richard's, though, who's actually a student of mine, also kept on, he, when he got to campus, he, he seeked me out and was like, you worked in the same lab as a friend of mine. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> Hi. Okay. So. Yeah. Uh, so the, the, the lab that we work in, or... That, that Richard and I uh, work in now are uh, is a is a wine yeast research lab. Um, so I, I think we were just talking about this on, on the on the drive in. Um, we all are we're, we're really into beer, and, and then went about looking for uh, a way to pursue beer research uh, at an academic level. Um, but you know, living in southern Ontario, there, there wasn't a whole lot. Uh, the, the, there aren't there aren't any beer yeast research labs really in um, in this part of the world. So uh, we all ended up in this wine yeast research lab. Um, so we we all had projects of, of varying uh, applicability to, to to real world uh, fermentations. But but it's all about um, you know yeast metabolism and and how how yeast um, adapt to changing uh, fermentation conditions. So yeah, so I, I've been I've been in that lab for. You know, really long time <laughs> and uh nate did uh did an undergrad project and then he left and then richard came on and now richard's doing uh doing a master's very cool so then you guys decided uh to start this company it, was that because of a lack of this kind of service for the beer industry in ontario basically yeah i mean i don't think that what our original plan was it, is what it is now. Like, I think originally we were sort of banking the weirdest stuff we could find. So we would, you know, get sour beers and stuff like that and, and, uh, isolated bank pretendomyces and bacteria. And and we had thought that we would be the supplier for, for that stuff. Um, and and that was sort of where, where this came from. Um, but then we actually went and like talked to brewers and, and realized that, that they wanted to buy like normal ale yeast more than they wanted to buy the, the, the sour and funky stuff that we thought they wanted. So that the, sort of changed things from the original idea, which which was yeah, formed in, in that lab. The, the margins are higher for, for the weird stuff, but yeah, we, we can make a lot of money if we're able to sell everybody uh, California ale. Like the, that's, the, everyone asks us, asks us for that. Or, or various, you know, uh, ale yeasts. We can, um, it, 
people are are really enthusiastic about about buying their their flagship uh, yeast or the the, the yeast for the, for their flagship brews um, uh, from us. In addition to the the, the breads and the, and the sour stuff, it's the number one seller at the homebrew shop too. Um, USO five California ten fifty six mm-hmm. outsells everything. Uh, you know by a multitude. Um, when I was first buying for the shop, I brought, I bought, you know, I had the list from White Labs, and I'm like, oh man, Brett C, Brett, you know, <laughs> I'm loading up on Flemish, and it was a few years ago, and no one bought it, and all this stuff, like, I had to use it, or like, a bunch of it went to waste, just because I bought so much of it, and only recently have people really started getting into bread and stuff like that, but still, um, I think our interest is greater than the overall market for it, but it's catching up. But yeah, O one California is just the biggest seller by far. Yeah, nine to one. Yeah, I, I had a conversation with it with a brewer this weekend who said, you know, I, I know you guys are making a name for yourself with with the the the, the Bretts and the and and Blacko pitches, but you know, if you guys can sell me a hundred heck pitch of of, of Cali, basically, uh, then you'd be making a lot of money. And yeah. I said. Yes, we already know that. <laughs> just, yeah, yeah. It's just uh, our we have been struggling with some some technical issues that that like we just can't provide that kind of volume right now. Yeah. yeah. What's um, what is the difference between you know building a starter as a home brewer and then building something at that size? Like, what are the considerations for that? Well, I mean, if you're if you're a home brewer, you're not you're not selling your product to someone else. You don't have any any guarantee to make that this is uh, pure and it's going to work, um, as a, except to yourself, obviously. You know, it sucks when your beer doesn't work out. Um, but, you know, if you're a commercial yeast supplier, we have to make sure that we're growing enough yeast and that it's high enough quality and that it's high enough purity that, that the customer isn't going to have any, any problems with it. Yeah. So that is, is a very different mindset, I think. It's even a, a different mindset between what we're doing and what a pro brewer would be doing, where like even even their sort of standards are a little bit more lax than than ours because um, they're yeah they, they're just beholden to themselves and, and and we need to be able to stand behind our product that is our product and if 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 brewers have any kind of doubts about the, the, the what kinds of microbes are, are in our product then then we're we're dead in the water. So yeah, we we have rigorous QC protocols to, to, to go through before we before we ship anything out. Well, um, we made a, an IPA at the shop, ten gallons, and then one of the starters a fly went into it. <laughs> so we, we called that one Fly PA, and the other one No Fly PA. <laughs> yeah. Well, how did it turn out? Uh, was pretty good actually. Was Fly PA better? Fly PA. Uh, it was pretty good. <laughs> was there was there actually a noticeable difference? Like, I feel like sometimes people get a little paranoid. No, uh, you know, yeah. I think yeah. the, the hundreds of billions of yeast cells outcompeted that right. fly. Right. Um, but in general, I don't think you want too many flies around your beer. <laughs> sure. Uh, just as best practice. Like I've been I've been homebrewing before, and I've got my you know my burner outside, and I'm cooling out, and I'm like, all right, cool, and I'm drinking instead of cleaning up like I should be, and. Uh, you know, you just watch and like a leaf falls out of a tree directly into the pot. And I'm like, oh, come on. But it's like, well, I've gone this far. I might as well see it through. And it's fine. It's totally fine. You know, yeast is pretty robust if you pitch enough of it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Another difference between what a homebrew would be doing and what, what we're doing is, is just the scale. Like, yeah. when you have a one liter flask, you can throw that on a stir plate, or, or even in a, in a research lab, you can throw that, throw that on a shaker. Yeah. Um, but you can't have you know, five hex of work shaking yeah. on a shaker. You need, you need to find some other way to aerate that. They, they don't make 500 liter or the so, I mean, just because of the volumes that we're, we're dealing with, that, that introduces a whole bunch of complications that, that we didn't even think were going to be issues. Uh, but you found a way. We're, freak, we're figuring our way through it. Yeah, for, I think for the most part we've, we've solved a lot of our issues, but, uh, but of course, I mean, it's a long road. There, <laughs> there, there will be other issues that, that, that creep up. Yeah. Do you guys plan on doing, uh, like, I've used your yeast before. That's probably fairly well known. Uh, we did. And did you like it? I did like it. Great. You remember we That's did glad. that, uh, you guys brought in the, the different worts, and it was all isolated yeast from some orchard in Guelph or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was a great day. And yeah. that beer turned out awesome. Um, do you plan on offering homebrew size pitches in the near future, or is it just pro for the moment? We. Yeah, it, for, for the moment, it, it's just pro. Um, we, when we started this, we really thought that that the the sort of two branches of our, our business would be selling to pro brewers and selling to home brewers. Um, but we're finding that um, the because of the way, but a, a the margins are lower when you're when you're selling to um, to to home brewers because it's really easier to go through a middleman like Zach, uh, who's going to take a cut. Um, and then you have to worry about packaging, um, you know, packaging up, you know, a hundred different um, uh, samples of, of of a larger pitch, you know, that that also uh, is costly. Um, so yeah, for now we're 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 focusing on the on the pro side, um, but we we fully intend to, to sell the homebrewers once we've got our feet under ourselves a little bit better. I will say that we do have we do have packaging and labeling pretty much sorted out for homebrewers, which yeah. is good. That's actually something we struggled with for a while um, to find packages that didn't leak and, uh, <laughs> and labels that didn't get soggy. So uh, we're definitely making headway there. It's yeah, just uh, figuring the logistical challenge of, of packaging large quantities of, of homebrew yeast and mm-hmm. distributing it so that the consumer gets it fresh, yeah, right. as opposed to like four months old. Cool. Keep us posted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd love to know about that. Uh, let's talk about this beer that we're drinking. Okay. Uh, it's a beer I made. Um, pretty simple up front. Like, it's just 100% pills. Um, I, I think it was Pacific Jade for hopping. Um, but then a uh, pretty complicated fermentation um, in the sense that <laughs> <course>. it's... That's what I do. Based on what we are. Um, in the sense that it's a, it's a it's 100% Brett beer, but it's not a single strain. It's, it's actually a blend of, of four different strains. Um, and this is sort of its second generation through, um, and it, it does change a little bit every time I use it. But this this was a, turned out to be a pretty decent beer, I think. Um, it's good as fuck. So yeah, <laughs> it, it basically, it fermented out for about a month. That's typical of Brett beers. Can you um, uh, can you elaborate on which strains? Um, they were two strains from Quebec and two strains from Ontario. So if, if you've never met Rich, this is about as precise of an answer as he ever gives you. So stuff you isolated. Yes, exactly. Right. 
Um, the, yeah, the reason being that I just don't want to be specific about it because you know, we might change the blend and start selling it. Just want, don't want to talk about something and, and I don't I don't know how to not be able to sell it. Exactly, exactly. I don't I don't want to say this is amazing and then and then say no, it's it's only available to me. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's a it's a Brett blend, which I really like Brett blends because I think you do get a little bit more complexity with them as opposed to some of the... I mean, there are some really good single-strain breaths, um, but for me, I, I think the blends do give you a lot of uh, complexity and flavor and aroma. Um, there, there are practical reasons to do that, too. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you got a you got a mix of uh, like a, a, a strong fermenter and, and one that, exactly. that provides a lot of character. Um, that is beneficial. Right? Absolutely. Instead of, instead of leaning on a boring thing that um, that ferments out great or, or a, a crappy fermenter that tastes great, you can have a blend and Um, and then, so this beer was, um, I did dry hop it with a little bit of Pacific Jade, and then I added some key lime juice, um, and then bottle conditioned. Um, and I did actually add some wine yeast for the bottle conditioning. Uh, one thing I've found just, just through, uh, experiments homebrewing is that with 100% Brett beers, you can reduce some of the, what I perceive as off flavors you get from bottle conditioning young Brett beers, uh, by bottling with wine yeast, so that the wine yeast metabolizes the sugars there and, and creates the carbonation much quicker than the bread. I don't really have a great scientific explanation for this, but it is something that I have anecdotally observed and, and that I know a few other people have observed. Which wine yeast and how much would you say for bottling like a pack for five gallons? or uh, Like a quarter of a pack. Right, like right. You don't need much. Uh, this one was, it's called QA23. I don't know if it's available in like the small like homebrew style packs. But it, it's a nice one. It's like a fruity white wine yeast, basically. But you could use, like, um, what's the other one? Um, There's a Code de Blanc one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, East 1118 or D47. D47 like, any of those would, yeah. would work well, too. Cool. What about USO5 or just California? You don't think that's good? Yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. Saccharomyces. That, that would probably work fine, too. I actually haven't, haven't tried that. So in terms of cell count, to get specific with you guys, are you looking at, like... 25 billion cells when you bottle for five gallons. If one pitch is like 100 billion, yeah, like about about a million cells per mil, basically would be like a bottle conditioning pitch rate. Cool, nice. I've never actually done that. I've never pitched more yeast to to bottle condition before, so that's actually a pretty excellent tutorial. Tidbit, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got some some pretty old sour beers that are going to need yeah, something. For, for so. old beers, I would definitely yeah. recommend it. It's like high gravity or sour. Because there's a good chance that the you know whatever yeast is in there may have mostly died off. Have you used the like the CBC one, the conditioning uh, yeast from Malamed, or what do you? What's your opinion on conditioning? No, I, I haven't. I mean, the idea is to, is to have a yeast that will ferment quickly and also flocculate to get it to get it out of solution, which is great. But there are like there are existing ale and wine strains that do that. Right. Like um, another good one is the uh, like a London ale strain. Um, that's sold by all of the you know the major yeast suppliers. Um, that's a great one for bottle conditioning because it does uh, flock out really sort of tightly. Yeah. Um, so if you want a bottle conditioned beer that pours relatively clear until the end, that's that's a good strain for that. Now, in a beer like this specifically for uh, a bread beer or a sour, uh, a lot of people worry about the gravity, right? When like it, you hear people say, "Oh, it's got to be at zero, like one point zero zero, right?" Before you even attempt to bottle it, but I'm more of the opinion that's going to be kind of stable. 
Well, I mean, you, you you have to check it, and you know, if, if it's a, you need to know your microbes really. So if it's a if it's a yeast or a blend that you haven't worked with before, you should check it a few times before you try to bottle it. And you know, if it's got uh, bacteria in it, then then like space it out at least a month or two and make sure that that FG is stable. Um, and then also like don't move the bottles somewhere warmer than they were than than the beer was held while it was fermenting too, because then you actually might encourage re-fermentation so that, that's the key point is, is to know your microbes really if, if you know you have a you know a, a brett strain that always attenuates to like 10 15 or something and that's just what it does then yeah you can feel comfortable bottling with that but you need to, you need to know how it behaves great okay we're going to take a quick break uh, everyone's going to refill their glass and we'll get a little more into some more yeast management for homebrews <laughs> You're listening to Brew Talk Online. Hey folks, Kevin here from Brew Talk Online. I wanted to take a quick second to tell you about our show sponsor, torontobrewing.ca. For years now, Zach and the boys at torontobrewing.ca have been providing homebrewers across the province with fresh ingredients and equipment to make the best homebrew possible. I must say, when I first walked into the store, I was impressed with the large selection. From extract to all grain, these guys have it all. What's more is the large array of equipment for brewing that they carry, along with everything you need to keg your homebrew and dispense it from your very own kegerator. If you are just getting into homebrewing, try out one of their pre-made ingredient kits. With many years of combined experience and knowledge, they'd be happy to answer any questions you have. Shop in person at the storefront at 3701 Chesswood Drive, right near Downsview Park, or shop online at torontobrewing.ca. Thanks, everyone, for sticking around. So we're here with Escarpment Labs. I keep wanting to say Escarpment Yeast Labs, but you guys recently changed your name. We did a rebrand. We yep. did. Why is that? Because uh, we don't only do yeast. Uh, I mean, so selling yeast is going to be, like, one of our... It's going to be the central thing that we do. Um, but we also do uh, micro QC, um, and we sell microbes that aren't yeast. So uh, Brett is a yeast, but uh, we also sell uh, brewing bacteria. Um, so yeah, uh, there are, we have other things going on in our business other than yeast. So we wanted a, a name that sort of encompasses everything that we do. Great. <laughs> yeah, sounds, sounds pretty <laughs> yeah. good. Yeah. And so and part of our, our rebrand was a new logo also. We've got uh, an updated website too at escarpmentlabs.com. Nice, nice with the plugs. Go Twitter, check it out. Instagram, Twitter, Instagram, a Facebook page that we sometimes update. Uh, yeah, that's all. That's all at Escarpment Labs. Yes. Cool. Yep. Yeah. Very good. 
so this segment, we I want to get into what uh, home brewers can do as far as basic yeast management, lab setup, that kind of stuff at home. Um, what do you guys think would be the, I guess, essential tests that every like home brewer should be doing on their yeast? Like for me, that's um, go online, find a pitching rate calculator, make a start. Yeah, that's the very least you can do. Uh, that's great. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if say that the yeast source, uh, if the, your yeast is a few months old or say not at its ideal prime rate, it, you should be doing a starter. Uh, especially making anything that's like higher ABV or anything like that, you want to do, to be doing any sort of something you can kind of increase the cell viability and vitality of the yeast cells. You know, you want your yeast cells to be nice, super, and healthy. You don't want them to be, you know, withered cells that have been sitting in the tube for two months. Uh, from a Kind of the comparison of this from a, a pro brewer to a home brewer, like most breweries will kind of get their stride of a yeast strainer in the second to third generation. Those first one to two generations aren't consistent. Like you actually get more esters, you get lower attenuation, you get a different character than you get from generations like three onward. So by doing a starter, you can actually help kind of skip that step. You can get your yeast cells more attenuated, more acclimated to the environment. So you're going to be in a closer state to that, you know, generation two, three, four, five, which is. Uh, for that same reason, reusing your yeast is also a great idea. You're kind of getting your yeast cells in a more fermentatively active and suitable state. Cool. Now, so vi- vitality is kind of like one of those those buzzwords, I guess, in yeast because it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't per- mean a particular test. It just means like a state of being, right? Yeah, vit- vitality is really hard to measure. Uh, there's kind of two tests to do for yeast, and this is you need a lab for doing this. Like if the first, this is not by no means the first test you'd be doing. Um, viability is the is the cell alive or dead? So you know is is the yeast cell you know flatlining or does it still have a pulse? Uh, that being said, you know a uh, someone who's on their deathbed and Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime are both alive. But if you need to save the world, you're going to be choosing Arnold opposed to the person who's on the deathbed. <laughs> so you want to make sure that the yeast cells you're using are prime. You want to need to work them out. You need to put them in these kind of standard fermentation techniques, which is why. Yeast are getting used to their environment, you know, making sure they're super healthy. They've just come off a big meal after working out via a prior fermentation. Uh, that's why you really want these yeast cells to be reused and healthy and vital. So viability is important, alive or dead, or vita- and vitality is also very important. Being you know Arnold versus uh, a, a, and a granny not doing so well. <laughs> And so, so viability you can measure at home. Um, I've I've done that. Mm-hmm. I've seen it. That's where you're staining a slide, and you're literally counting the cells that have either had the stain go in or had the stain go out, depending on which one you use. Yep. Yep. Right. Most people would probably get that blue one. Methylene blue. Yeah. There's also tripan blue, which would it it does work a little better. The staining's darker, but it is a little more toxic. So sort of have to have that trade off. Meth- to- toxic to people or toxic to yeast? To people. Right, so don't <laughs> probably to yeast. To, to cells. Methylene blue is much safer. Yeah. I, most, I, my students only use methylene blue due to safety. But tripan blue is much better. Okay, and so that, you're for people who have never done this before, you're looking at a sample of your yeast under a microscope on a slide. A, a very special yeah, slide. with a grid on it. Hemocytometer. Yeah, and there you go. I didn't even know it had a fancy name. It does. Uh, and then you're, uh, you're counting the cells... And getting a percentage, so that's when people say like, "Oh, the viability is seventy percent," which is actually kind of horrible for at least the pro scale. You kind of want it a little higher than that. Yeah, seventy percent, yeah. you're going to start having some issues. So, say you're pitching a hundred cells, which you're not. You're never going to pitch a hundred cells. But say you're pitching a hundred <laughs> cells, and your viability is only seventy percent. Well, then you need to pitch more than a hundred cells yeah. to get 
that same amount of living cells. Like, mm-hmm. that makes perfect sense. And that's something people can do at home with a microscope and this hemocytometer. Yeah, that, that's kind of an, uh, an advanced uh, kind of yeast management practice. Like, you know, you know you're, you're, the things you need to buy for that are a hemocytometer, which can run you about, depending on how you get it, you know, China's great. Uh, you can get them for like 15, 20 bucks on eBay or Amazon or anything like that, but they're not so good. If you have a microscope, I have a microscope, but that's just, I'm that kind of strange person. Uh, you're not alone. A lot of, a lot of homebrewers have microscopes. That's true, yes. Uh, so if, if you have those things already, you can be doing this, uh, but it's by no means the first kind of test. Uh, to be doing like the starter is definitely number one. Yeah. Like yeast rinsing is also another big one, mm-hmm. uh, where you're uh, with the CBA talk that you had before. I kind of went into some of that stuff. Yeah, previous that. episode we did. You can hear Nate's talk about that. Yeah, that's that's a really good technique. Helps you isolate your dead yeast cells away from your your living yeast cells, and then you're kind of getting into hemocytometer and cell counts, and you know, really kind of taking a, a real microbiological look at your yeast cells. The, the other major advantage of, of actually having a microscope, even as a home brewer, is that um, you can also, you know, observe contamination. So if you, if you have a culture that you've maybe used for, you know, five generations onward, if you have a microscope, you, you actually might be able to see if there if there's some kind of microbial contamination that might um, affect the, the future batches. So that is one, one powerful tool um, you have if you do have a microscope. So if you've got, like... Wild yeast, like Brett, or if you have lacto, those are those are very obvious, and you, you will see those even even under um, any, any microscope that can see yeast should be able to see those. Well, describe to me what that would look like. Yeah, what type of objective lens, or is there a cheap like Zeiss or something uh, microscope that homebrewers can buy? What would you use? I actually don't know. Um, one thing you, you might want to do is is ask around at like university like teaching labs, for example. They usually have like old uh, teaching scopes kicking around. They're often pretty decent in terms of optics. They, they won't have, like, cameras or anything like that, but you'll at least get a nice little dinky scope that has good optics on it to actually see cells. You overall need about a 400x magnification, yes. uh, about a 10x from your... your, your, right, your, your, your yeah. Exactly. Uh, sorry, no, a 40x objective lens, and then your like, the top lens being right, about right. 10x. Uh, yeah. And that will give you most... You'll be able to see most standard yeast cells. Uh, Sanosaccharomyces cells will be quite circular. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pastorianus or lager yeast cells will be a bit more kind of oblong shaped. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brett are even a bit more oblong shaped, but varies. Brett are extraordinarily variable. You know, one strain you'll see that looks like it looks like branches of a tree. Yeah, uh, you, and you'll get some that look like big lemons. You'll get some of these tiny little sausage kind of shapes like barely bigger than bacteria. It's, mm-hmm. it's actually amazing how diverse they are. And all, all yeast, if you look at that under the microscope, they won't move. So if you do see something moving around in the kind of the background that's much smaller, you're likely looking at some sort of bacteria. Right. Yeah. So it's bacteria, especially lactobacillus, will be small kind of little rod shaped, but guys just kind of right, sure. very quickly move around and they have the back. Usually a bit harder to focus on, but again, the, the higher the quality of the scope you have, the easier it will be to actually focus and zoom in on these things. The yeast will sort of float around. Yes, yes, yes. They, sorry, they won't be sort of moving their their bodies uh, in, in, in a way that uh, um, in like a highly yeah, choreographed yeah, dance routine. Yeah, exactly. yes. yeah, you're, you're not having yeast cells doing really extra. They're doing the chicken. Bacterial cells will seem to move around in like a, a non, like a, a seemingly random order. While yeast cells, you may see the entire entire slide kind of slide off in a, gener- in a standard direction. 
especially if your your scope's been there for too long and you're actually drying your sample out or uh, you have too much liquid on there, you will see some movement due to the kind of the currents. Yeah, you can get these weird microcurrents going on. Under, yeah. Like between the, between the slide and the, and the slide cover that, yeah. that will affect what you're looking at. Do you guys ever watch yeast ferment and get slightly roused? <laughs> <laughs> I have students listening, so... <laughs> No. Uh, eh. You just yeah. think that. <laughs> now, it, what would you do? Like, I mean, you guys have different goals than a home brewer, but if you're looking at, say you're taking a viability count at home and you see a couple, a PDO or something, are you, are you pitching it or do you think the yeast is just going to out-compete it? it? You are going to see some yeast out-competition. Not, not a huge amount. Even some brewers will kind of, they do have a slight contamination. It's not recommended by any means. Uh but you can reuse it. If you are going to do that, acid washing acid is a must. Right. Uh, so acid washing is a process of adding usually uh, phosphoric acid for breweries. Uh, however, if you're a home brewer, you can use P- uh, sorry, uh, lactic acid. You want to bring the wort, so your, your yeast sample down to at a pH of about 2. Uh, 2.2 is kind of the ideal. From 2 to 2.4 is kind of your, your range. Uh, you want to leave it there for about 60, 60 minutes to 120 minutes, and that will actually kill off a lot of bacteria, uh, mainly lactobacillus. Uh, once you have those two those two hours, do a very quick cell viability. Uh, you will see the cell viability decrease a bit. So if you are, say, using a microscope, you want to do that test right after. If you don't have a scope, you want to over-pitch that sample. Uh, and that will help reduce your lacto. Uh, quick note on this. PDO is acid-tolerant. Uh, some large-scale breweries, if they're reusing their uh, their acid cleaners, will actually see PDO contaminations in their reused acid. <laughs> so you, it's not... Acid washing is not a good idea for PDO, but it's a great idea for lactobacillus. Uh, there are other things you can do. You can actually wash your yeast with, say, things like chlorine dioxide if you have access to it, or uh, ammonia... Uh, oh, the word's escaping, but there are there are other things you can add to, to an acid wash. Quaternary ammonia. Quaternary ammonia. Uh, and that will help get rid of your PDO contaminations. Now, acid washing is something that I do every day, pretty much. Uh, we do it for every pitch of yeast that we use at Wellington, and it seems to be benefiting us pretty well. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and, and certain just, yeast strains... I, uh, sorry. I'm of, I'm of the opinion that there's no perfect word, you know, and I should yeah. always be striving towards getting that, and that gives me a benchmark, but I just believe any any fail-safe you can put in is great. <laughs> is a little bit overkill for a home brewer who can just go spend $8 on another vial of yeast? Uh... <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, but there's a definite that argument. If you're if you're into this side of things, it's something you can do, and it's a if, technique that's widely practiced. If you are, say, a home brewer that has aspirations of turning pro, then I would absolutely recommend you start acid washing. Kind of start doing these techniques and practices that you would be using when you actually get commercial. You know, it's a, a 20, 20 liter batch of beer that you screwed up because you didn't acid wash properly is is much more uh, much easier on your wallet than say a two thousand liter batch of beer that you screwed up because of the same reason. It's actually something I'd like to add. Um, if, if you are a home brewer and you're looking at going pro, um, start learning how to reuse your yeast now because mm-hmm. it'll save you a whole lot of money when, when you're, you know, your actual house is on the line. Yeah. Right. Yeast is expensive. Yes. Yeah, so something else to that as well. Uh, and, and I have, you know, I teach at Niagara, so I have students coming to me all the time like, you know, hey, I just got hired at this brewery, I got hired at this brew pub, you know, or I'm, I'm working with these guys who are trying to start up a brewery and this is what they're trying to make. Uh, you want to try and use a single strain. You want to try and use the same strain for multiple beers. Uh, if, say, you are... Uh, how to put this properly? If you have a Saison strain, an IPA strain, and a Hefe strain, 
And say you're, you're producing each one of those only every two weeks. Well, now you're letting two weeks pass between every single time you're using that mm -hmm. yeast. Now, as you let that yeast cell, those yeast cells age and you're not using them, their yeast cell viability actually dies. You're, you're actually effectively starving your yeast cells and ASR nutrients for two weeks, which means that you really can't repitch them. You really can't remanage them. This is something even for homebrewers when you are trying to, say, make or reuse the same yeast, you want to be using it as soon as possible. Uh, there is no kind of drop-dead date, you know, if, it's, if the culture is 10 days old, you don't want to use it anymore. The sooner you use it, the better. Uh, the colder you can keep it, the better. The more oxygen to void you can keep it, the better. You don't want your yeast cells warm and full of oxygen. It's a really bad combo for, for kind of keeping their viability high. Uh, but if you do want to go pro, try to use the same strain and crank out like five or six beers that you're only using that same strain. So that you're, you're constantly repitching from brand to brand to brand to brand. You don't have to have three or four different yeast strains on hand. And that will save you a lot of money. Your yeast cell value will be much higher, and you're going to get more consistent, higher quality beer. It, it may seem boring, but but you have to do that to succeed or, or to, to, to be to be viable as a business. Mm -hmm. But there are certain strains that are more kind of used to that. Uh, like California Ale, you can make everything from IPAs to uh, American Ambers. You can even kind of tweak it certain ways to make it. Can do some pseudo English styles or barley wines or wheat wines or you know you can really kind of push to go different avenues. Uh, in the extreme case are things like Cry Havoc, where you can use it as an ale strain and a pseudo lager strain as well. Uh, what you'll also see some breweries do is like they'll have their kind of standard core Cali ale strain, which is why we, most breweries want Cali. Uh, but then they'll bring in, say, a Belgian strain and then do a series of beers just using that Belgian strain. So they'll come off first and say, do a Belgian pale ale. And then afterwards, they'll do a Belgian blonde, and a double, then a triple. They'll kind of sequence out all the beers they're going to be brewing over, say, their summer season or their winter season or fall season based on that yeast strain. So they kind of, if you do want to do things that are different with a different yeast strain, you kind of line up a series of beers, not just one beer, with that same yeast strain. That, that's something that's really useful for homebrewers to kind of get used to doing. Yeah. Uh, for the winter, bring a lager strain in, you know, make a whole whack load of lagers. And then, for, say, for the summer, bring a saison strain in and start making some saisons when fall comes don't just stop using the saison strain. Pick it up again next summer. And if you combine that with what you said in the last talk about washing yeast, exactly. I mean, you can you can get away with a whole bunch of things. Um, it's kind of like getting a whole new pitch, right? Mm -hmm. You have a nice, healthy, viable, vi full of vitality <laughs> pitch that you can use for your next batch instead yeah. of just dumping the slurry and crap into exactly. your work or whatever. There's also uh, something else to keep in mind. Like, home brewers aren't having, they don't use conical fermenters, which all pro brewers do. So kind of that yeast washing technique you saw before. I talked about before is ideal for that. Um, but something else to hark on that. So if you're trying to, say, make a Belgian triple, uh, if you were to use, say, yeast from straight from a tube and then one that's kind of been reused from another fermentation, those yeast cells from the prior fermentation are actually going to be in a much better state. They're much more viable and more vital than the, tubes, than the cells straight from the tube. So you're actually going to have a healthier fermentation if you use repitched cells, which is why you'll see a lot of breweries say they'll get Cali ale in first. They'll make their pale ale with it. They won't, they won't pitch that initial culture into their IPA because that IPA is a harsher, more kind of stressful environment to those cells. So by adding those things to it, by kind of giving that kind of trial run on the pale ale, you're actually going to get a healthier, more vital, more flavorful, better IPA afterwards. So for Belgians, you typically want to start off with a Belgian blonde, then maybe do a double, higher ABV, pitch those same cells from the, that initial blonde also into a triple, also into a quad. So you're getting healthy cells and then making a, uh, a stronger ABV beer where you're actually asking those cells to do more and go through more stress. 
Um, so moving on into even more advanced, and I, I only bring this up because I've seen people do this, but plating and slants mm-hmm. at okay. home. And I've, I know people who do this. Uh, that's, I mean, it's pretty advanced for, for, for homebrewing, but it's, it's certainly possible, especially like for homebrewers who say there's a, a seasonal yeast that you really love and you want to, you know, you want that to be your house yeast, but you don't want to have to reuse it, you know, 20 times over the course of the year. You want to have a stock, then it absolutely makes sense to keep that on, on a slant or on a plate so that you actually have that yeast available, available to you year, year round. And certainly there are some, some homebrewers that do that. Describe a describe a plate first, and then so, we'll get into what a so slant is. So a plate is. would be a, like a sterile petri dish that is filled um, halfway with uh, a solid agar medium. So a nutrient based medium that also has agar in it, which solidifies when it cools, so that then it creates a surface that you can actually spread yeast cells onto and actually obtain isolated colonies uh, of pure yeast that you can then use to to actually start from the very beginning of a propagation. And then you'd grow up a, a plate, say, into, what are we talking, like 10 milliliters of wort, 100 milliliters of wort? Uh, yeah, usually somewhere between 5 and 50. It really does depend on the strain. Um, some seem to tolerate bigger steps than others. Actually, that brings up a good question. Um, isolating from bottles, bottle yeah. dregs. you got a favorite beer, it's got... Not don't even consider bacteria, but say you just want to take some. <laughs> say you want to take some some yeast don't out of some bacteria. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, here real, real life example: uh, Blanche de Chambly. Um, sure, it's a you really want, you want the Quebec Belgian strain. Yeah, you, yeah. you want the Unibrew strain. Yeah. Um, how many bottles do you need? How would you personally go about doing it? Like right now, you go to the beer store, you grab a beer. How do you do it? I mean, like, if I was a homebrewer, I'd probably just, just throw it into some starter work, but um, as uh, as a someone who is a microbiologist and is interested in isolating pure cultures, often from bottles, yes. um, the thing to do would be to try to handle that beer in as, not necessarily sterile, but in as aseptic a manner as possible. So, you know, it might be a good thing to spritz the, the top of that bottle with some kind of sanitizer before you open it up. Um, and then also, obviously, pour it, pour the beer and enjoy it, but keep the yeast at the bottom, assuming this is a bottle-conditioned beer with live yeast in it. Um, and then what you can do from from there is um, you could transfer what's left there into a some kind of sterile container. Like, we use these disposable uh, centrifuge tubes. They're very cheap. Um, people can buy those. I've seen people buy, like, the pseudo, like, White Labs vials, too. Um, just to have something to keep that yeast in. And then if you wanted to actually isolate it, that's where you get into the plates and the slants. So you would take that, that yeast, the bottle dregs that you've isolated, that, sorry, that you've, uh, taken out from that bottle. Um, and you would, you would then actually use like a sterile, um, loop, um, or stick or whatever you have available to you that's sterile. Cotton um, swab. Cotton swab. Those, those come sterile. Um, to actually sort of spread those uh, the yeast onto that plate or onto that slant, um, and then you would you would incubate that plate and let the let the colonies grow up, and then once you have pure colonies, you you have that yeast isolated. Cool. So so can I just dump some starter word into the bottle that I drank it from? Yeah, I mean you can do that too. I mean you don't want to drink the beer from like, you don't don't put your mouth to the bottle at all. <laughs> then you're capturing mouth bacteria. So don't do that. I mean the, the one thing you have to then sort of take into account is that you're trusting that that brewery made clean beer. And that's not even, even in beers that taste clean, that's not always the case. There might be a, you know, a, a small, like, 
bacterial population, for example. And, and this is something that comes into in, 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 into play in, in our business too. Like very small microbiological errors can get grossly amplified when you're stepping these things up. So you need to make sure. Well, well, we certainly need to make sure that we have impeccable uh, microbial QC like, throughout our, our process. Just stepping up and stepping up and make sure, making sure that we that, that, that a, a two-cell uh, contamination doesn't end up uh, being a, a ruined batch of, of yeast or, or even more so a ruined batch of beer. But yeah, same thing applies in, in home brewing. You, you want to make sure that you have good QC. I do want to comment one thing on that. Um, some, uh, I didn't say some, a, f- a fair amount of bottle conditioned beers don't use their standard bottling strength, like a standard fermentation yes. strength. Yes. So what you might end up doing, I, I, I remember it was at the NBA this past year, they, were, it was, uh, they had a panel with someone from Unibrew, and I can't recall what their actual verdict was. I know they did a test where they had their house strain versus champagne strain versus a wine yeast, and they did a whole side by side on all three of them, and significant flavor difference. Um, I can't recall what they actually go with for the production, but you might end up producing, like, sorry, growing up a strain that is just bottle conditioning strain, right. which actually, it's, when you use them for fermentation, are either going to taste like nothing or yeah. actually not taste very good. Right. Um, something to keep in mind. That, that's why kind of going through a pre-culture, going through what Richard said, plating it out is very, very important. And then once you plate it, actually testing to make sure that is the full strain. There, there are a lot of resources available for you to find out which, which beers you can culture, like, the right yeast from, like I know uh, Mike Todsmeyer, the guy who wrote American Sour Beers, he has, he has a list on his website of, of bottles of beer that have culturable dregs. That's the madfermentationist.com? Um, madfermentationist, yeah. Cool. Um, I know I, I've seen discussion on like the GTA Brews Facebook page of people asking which bottles can be cultured from as well, and usually there's there's an answer from, from someone that knows. So there's definitely resources available for you to, to not waste your time. Cool. Great answer. And then, so the reason I said let's not even consider bacteria is because, like, just, like, let's assume these beers are clean, like, literally clean, no bacteria, somehow, like, they're they're magically just one strain. So what about a mixed strain? What about if someone's bottling with bread? What if you want to try and get the Orval bread? It gets trickier, right? Yeah. Is um, that just because of the proportions? That's they when you grow? really start to be the proportions. So, you know... That beer that you get might not microbially be the same composition as it was when it was bottled. So even if someone bottled it with five strains of bread, they might not all have survived the ride from from that brewery to the distributor to the store to you. Um, so and then sitting in your basement for five years. Typically, exactly, um, you'll have you know a couple dominant species in there or strains rather. Um, so what you actually can do to encourage the growth of, of every member of that population, if you are looking for, you know, yeah, a couple different strains from a beer, is um, usually what, what we do and what we recommend doing is is what I would call an enrichment step, which is really on, on the homebrewing scale as simple as just pouring those dregs into a bit of starter wort and letting it sit and ferment out, because that, um, especially if it's not on a stir plate. It actually should give all of the members of, of that community, so like the Brett or, or Lacto or whatever's in that beer that you're trying to isolate from, um, should give them all a chance to wake up and become active in a new fermentation. And then once you have actively growing cells, it becomes a lot easier to isolate them through plating or, or what have you. There are, if there's one thing I want to mention on this, there are some extreme cases for us where you actually can't. Uh, the best example would probably be Guz's, or Guz's Lambic. I can never pronounce things. My pronunciation is... 
Exactly. <laughs> it's not lambic, it's long beak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is that like, if you look at, at long beak production, uh, you have this large enterobacter and, and kind of non-favorable organism beginning to ferment, which actually during the production of it die. So you actually can't culture it unless you are there at the brewery at that moment when it yeah. is actually fermenting. So there are some beers where you actually can't get all the organisms that were used to produce it, despite you having the final product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with most lambics, or, or whatever you want to call them, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> over over, over uh, two years old, the only thing you're going to really pull out is bread. It's the only thing that can survive the ride that long. Um, and there's, there's like I think a paper came out that sort of said the same thing, and mm-hmm. we've seen this too when we try to isolate yeast from from older older uh, lambic style beers. Doesn't quite so work. if you're looking for just bread, then that's actually a great place to look, is actually seek out a very old bottle of Lambic, because you're pretty much guaranteed to just have bread left alive in there. Yeah, there was a great blog post recently, maybe it was that same paper, that kind of broke down the whole uh, microbial flora that is in the beer along yes. the way, and it was mind-blowing. I, right. thought, I just thought, oh, Brett C., done. But uh, <laughs> there are a, a, a dozen things that are in there that are contributing and dying off apparently over time and not making it but uh, it's super cool that so much goes into those sour beers that we enjoy and those coffee beers if, if you listen to like even John Van Waugh or, or Vinny at Russian River yeah. talk about their spontaneously fermented beers they'll tell you they're disgusting at six months like mm-hmm. they're gross yeah. um, now that's not to say that they don't know a certain kind of gross when they see it and get rid of that one but you know they're pretty seasoned veterans especially the Van Wall family. Um, but that does bring up another topic because you guys kind of got known for isolating wild yeast, um, either through samples from the outdoors or off fruit or, um, so just maybe like, do you have any, any tips for that in particular? Cause a lot of people will just leave a jar of wort with some cheesecloth outside. That's a great way to do it. Okay. Yeah. Um, otherwise you're looking at, uh, like actually taking, uh, taking fruit that you that has been outside and, 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 and putting it into work. Um, or you're looking at, again, buying sterile swabs and, and swabbing um, stuff. So um, uh, yeast will typically uh, settle on places where they have uh, natural sugar sources. So that generally means fruit. Um, but, you know, they're... Uh, flowers are also a, a reasonable candidate because the, the same insects that, that uh, are attracted to fruit are often attracted to, to, to flowers. So the, the, there will be some, some transfer there. And, and then also uh, because uh, Saccharomyces is just so pervasive in our environment, it just sort of settles on everything, especially towards the end of the summer, uh, early fall. Um, so it, yeast is sort of everywhere, um, and you can collect it by, by a bunch of different means. Do you feel the time of year makes a difference? Absolutely. Like, I, it has to be some sort of weird evolutionary coincidence that everything ripens towards the end of the summer. <laughs> so it would make sense that there's more of these yeasts yeah. that are accustomed to eating sugar around at the end of the summer. Yep. Right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Whoa. <laughs> 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 oh, absolutely. And it goes, it goes very deep. I mean, there's actually... I, I love to talk about this because I think it's like the coolest piece of research ever. Um, where, where these researchers showed that, that the, the production of aromas by yeast actually influences uh, them being eaten and picked up by fruit flies. So, like, yeast actually make these fruity, fruit-like aromas, 
that actually attract fruit flies to them. The fruit flies pick them up and take them to other fruit. And so there is this whole sort of, in my mind, co-evolution between yeast and fruit over time. Well, think about the evolutionary reason for skin on a fruit. The meat of the fruit's there to sustain the seed when it falls. The skin's there to protect it from all the yeast. So where are you going to find yeast in the air? You're going to find it on the skin of fruit. Right, just waiting. Like, boom. Yeah. (sighs) Wow. (laughs) <laughs> we need to take a little call. No, thanks, guys. This has been great. I think there was some really, really solid stuff there. Uh, just one more time, how can people get in touch with you? Through our website. Yep. yep. Uh, Twitter, Instagram. Scarmanlabs.com, at yep. Scarmanlabs. Yep. Uh, email address is info at scarmanlabs.com. Yep. Yep. Perfect. Uh, we're going to say thanks again to our generous sponsor, torontobrewing.ca. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Zach, thank you very much. It's been great. Thank you, homebrewers. And Kevin. And Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> All right, have a good night, everybody.